uh, when I landed, yeah, of course, uh, things are different. I, and I, I always say that it's the people's hearts were so warm. Yeah. You can feel it. But it's not really that. It was that it wasn't winter yet. That's right. <laughs> Welcome to Building Birmingham Together, a show about Birmingham's business leaders, successes, failures, and lessons learned to encourage you to remember that dreaming is free, but the hustle is sold separately. I'm your host, Kim Lee, founder and CEO of Forge. Building Birmingham Together is brought to you today by Forge. Forge is Birmingham's first professional co-working space located in the heart of downtown Birmingham at the Pazitz Building. With private offices, open workspace, as well as meeting and event space. Forge is the place where small business owners, entrepreneurs, and remote workers come together, meet new people, and get work done. If you would like to find out more about Forge, you can visit workatforge.com and schedule a tour directly on our website. Today, we have Dr. Kareem Boudwani joining us on Building Birmingham Together. Dr. Boudwani is the co-founder and CEO of Surflux, where they are literally crushing cancer. He is also the co-founder and CEO of Elixir, an innovative software solutions company striving to make the world greener and more efficient. So usually at this point, I like to have a nice little introduction of what the guest does and a few accomplishments, but Kareem has done so much and accomplished so many things and you're laughing, but it's true um, that, that it feels like I'm robbing the richness and the vastness of his work if I just limit this introduction. So what I'm really hoping is that in this interview, we'll be able to pull out all of the places and accomplishments um, Kareem's passions have taken him. I think the last line of Kareem's bio from the most recent Vulcan Community Award sums up all that he has done and will do. It says, Kareem believes that the twofold purpose of acquiring knowledge is to better understand the fabric of existence and to serve others. So today we are going to hear how that has played out in his life. Before we get started, I do want to remind you of a recently launched program at Forge, Connect. Connect is a weekly virtual networking event focused on building relationships, which actively facilitates the growth of all the businesses involved. Over the last several weeks, we've had a soft launch, but we are now taking founding members. The biggest advantage of being a founding member, besides bragging rights and making more connections sooner than others, you can feel my competitive side coming out, is that founding members will be locked in at the founding member price always. Today, I was thinking about the impact that a group like this could have on someone's business. So we all know that the very best source for new business is a referral and referrals come through relationships. So let's say you decide to join Connect and you meet 30 other people and you only make one new business relationship out of that. If you sell widgets and you know that the lifetime value of your customer is $400 and one year membership to Connect is to $240, you've almost doubled your investment. And we know that the likelihood is that you will make more than one business connection through this investment, and that will lead to other connections. So I get very excited about this because I love to see businesses grow. Um, I just love that. And it's also so exciting for me and for us at Forge to be able to play a role in that. We saw it uh, and we see it still every day 
day at Forge with our members. Um, but now that we're all disconnected um, from seeing each other in person, we are so excited to be able to bring this new avenue to connect with others through Connect. So if you are interested in learning more about Connect, visit our website, workatforge.com forward slash connect. Now on to the interview. So Kareem, thank you for being here. Kim, thank you for having me. You're so gracious. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it, you know. And <clears throat> I have to go back to the one uh, line that you mentioned earlier about the hustle. Is, oh, yeah. Uh, the hustle is, uh, sold separately. Yeah. You, you know, and I think that oftentimes, you know, in the particularly when you're starting something up, I think there's a lot of emphasis on the hustle. But I believe that what we can do uh, and what you are doing, even with Forge, is you're going to reduce some of that friction so that the mm -hmm. hustle, even though you have to be committed to what you're doing and you have to be dedicated and so on, but it doesn't have to be an unnecessary struggle. I think that you know, the, 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 the lower the barriers to huh. take ideas from implementation, it, I think it benefits everybody. So I appreciate uh, all that you do. And I think having places for people to connect, uh, to share ideas, to, to joke, to laugh. I think a lot of that goes into translating ideas to innovation. And so, yeah, I just wanted to, uh, you mentioned that. And I said, before I forget, I should That's make right. a note of that, that it should not just always be about the struggle. In fact, we need to, as a society, try to reduce the struggle that mm -hmm. is involved in taking good ideas uh, to innovation. I love that. Okay, before we really get started, I do want to say one more thing, if I haven't already embarrassed you enough, because I know that you don't like to talk about yourself, but so Kareem, if you, if you live in Birmingham and you have not met him, you need to, because he will be your greatest supporter in what you do, but it was so funny, I probably knew you for, I don't know, a year, a year and a half um, through Forge, through your supporting of the events that we do, especially the pitch night that we do, serving as a panelist. And um, it was probably a year and a half or two years before, maybe a year and a half, thinking timeline with COVID, before I realized that you were in the medical research scientist industry. I just thought you were an entrepreneur and loved business. And you are an entrepreneur and love business in science. So, um, Kareem, you are a true supporter of entrepreneurship, new ideas. Um, so I'm so glad to have you here to get you to tell your story. And um, we actually talked, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, and I learned so many new things about you. So um, I cannot wait for you to share your story and give us your perspective and your journey to um, surflux and crushing cancer. So I would love for you to start out just by telling us a little bit about your background and how you got to the U.S. Man, <clears throat> you know, it just sounds so good when you say it. And I hear I'm thinking to myself, who is she talking about? You. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm telling you, I, you know, if... Uh, the good thing is that luck, I have been extremely lucky because if it weren't for that, I, I would be uh, uh, nowhere near where I am today. It's um, so, yeah, I mean, even how do I uh, come to the U.S.? That's that's a long story. As we, as we talked about even last time, I, 
I wish I could take credit for that. Uh, <laughs> but it has been a lot of other people contributing to to bringing me to where I am. Uh, I, I think as we met, uh, talked the last last week, uh, whenever that was, you know, we grew up in very uh, uh, humble settings. So it, it would be it would be appropriate to say that uh, we 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 lived in poverty, and uh, I was extremely lucky. Like I said, you know, the, this whole strand of uh, lucky uh, happenings has been part of my life. We were able to rise out of poverty. I was able to come out of poverty, and so that in itself is great. If you uh, you know, obviously, and we, I would wish for that for everybody. Uh, and that's the the other part where I think I got really lucky is it's not just a, a matter of coming out of poverty. Once once you come out of poverty, you either are uh, uh, you know kind of sort of paranoid then about sinking back in. So you either have the attitude of hoarding, uh, you become more uh, protectionist, or you get the attitude of helping. You know, you 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 uh, want to, in fact, help other people who were in your circumstance to be able to rise up, not by just writing them checks, but uh, being able to help them uh, lift themselves out. And so that again, was a, a lucky break for me because were it not for that, I would not be doing half the things that I'm doing today. So that, that's, that's the, um, um, that, that's, so that's one aspect. The other aspect is, yeah, you come out of poverty, you have a, uh, the, the helping attitude rather than the hoarding attitude. But then, I mean, if you don't have a sort of a bigger picture of what you can do, uh, again, you're kind of at a loss. So even over there, I have been very lucky that I was surrounded throughout my life, even today. I'm surrounded by people who are just incredible people. Uh, everyone uh, around me uh, has contributed to, to where I am today. So if you don't have the right people around you, uh, then to, to inspire you, to guide you, then again, you know, you don't really know how to, uh, uh, to get out of this uh, and go out and help. But anyway, so, <clears throat> so I was in India and then uh, I was not very uh, happy with... Uh, the uh, the college level education over there yeah, you know of course uh, you know th this little guy coming out of like nowhere and he has the audacity to say that i'm not really pleased with the college education you know so but can i ask you a quick question so yeah. i know you grew up in india and i don't I, i've not been to india i don't know a lot about india but i do know that it's if you're it's a caste system is that so if you are in poverty, how easy is it for you even to get to college in India, in an Indian college? So, yeah, again, there are there are options. So I think okay. the good news is that India places a lot of emphasis on education. It's okay. a real positive um, because that, to me, I think one of the surefire levers of helping people rise out of poverty is education. We can pull the lever and see the impact. And I'm really glad that India has that, that emphasis on education and on higher education. The institutions of learning up until 12th grade, I think are pretty solid. In fact, uh, they would give many institutions around the world, especially the ones that, that I'm familiar with, would give many of the other institutions, K-12 institutions around the world, a huge run for, for their money. So really solid. Beyond that, once you start going into undergrad and grad study, 
that's where I think we need a little bit more infrastructural development, which currently is not, or at least I, should, I shouldn't say currently, I've been removed from that for some time now. But at the time, uh, we didn't have the right uh, infrastructure. And a lot of it at the time was then based on rote memorization mm-hmm. uh, and exams were like you show up and you throw up. And that's not the model that I thought was very um, conducive for growth, for innovation. It was good to be a cog in a wheel uh, by being able to do that. But for 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 uh, going the next to the next level, it had to be more uh, than just a show up show up model. And so, the good news again, like we get very lucky, is at the time, and I'm sure even today they have these institutions. The U.S. and even other countries used to have uh, educational outpost, so to speak, uh, in various different consulates. And they would share details about their college level education and how would one access it uh, from from, uh, various different contexts. So we had a really active uh, educational institute uh, uh, within the US consulate in Bombay. So I was pretty lucky that I was introduced to that group and uh, then in learning from them, I recognized what I had to do. I had to do the SATs. This is for undergrad, uh, by the way. And then uh, they would also share all kinds of learning materials for what does it take to, uh, you know, the practice tests for SATs, so on and so forth. So I was able to learn a lot from them in the, about the colleges over here in the United States, even having never been here, uh, and also be able to get those SATs done get application fee waivers because remember, we can't afford a dang thing at the time. So, <laughs> you know, I was able to get application fee waivers from all these schools, um, was uh, put in touch with recent alumni. Um, and so there was a lot of good people who um, worked together to help me build this sort of a, a pathway for, to come from, the, from India the, to the United States for my undergraduate education. And I landed in an incredible institution, Co College. It's uh, in in Iowa, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and I'm from Bombay. I have no idea. I've never heard of uh, Cedar Rapids, let alone Iowa. Yeah. I mean, Iowa, let alone Cedar Rapids. So um, I was like, where in the world am I going? But I I cannot tell you how thankful I am that I went there with people, incredible people. I get to learn from some of the best uh, faculty. Doc Feller, I hope you're listening. Um, <laughs> So, uh, you know, and it's not just that, by the way, because remember, I can't afford anything. The good news is that Co also gave me scholarship yeah. to cover my education. Of course, I had to come in, I had to do the research and so on and so forth, but I actually enjoyed that. That was, uh, you know, uh, getting paid to have fun, essentially. Right. <laughs> so uh, I loved it. Like I said, it's, it's been a string of lucky uh, accidents. Uh, and so, yeah, that's how I was able to come to the United States and get my undergrad uh, education at, at, at an excellent institution in Iowa. In Iowa, yeah. Uh, talk about, I bet you had to buy um, a different wardrobe as soon as you got there. <laughs> so, you know, the, the cold the in about, Iowa. Yeah. So, again, that's another cra- crazy thing. You know, when you, uh, when I landed, yeah, of course, uh, things are different. I, and I, I always say that it's the people's hearts were so warm. Yeah. I didn't feel it. But it's not really that. It was that it wasn't winter yet. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, <but laughs> it just already so, felt like winter. <laughs> I am telling you, it was just insane. So, the, the first winter was crazy. 
But then after that, you get used to it. I really yeah. did not have much of a, a wardrobe shift. Again, couldn't afford much. But, uh, um, you know, just a regular thin jacket, a fall jacket <laughs> lasted me throughout the year. I did not need much more uh, than that until I got to, uh, uh, you know, earning a little bit more money and then being able to buy uh, a, a jacket, which is a little heavier. But, you know, I mean, it was, wasn't too bad at all. Uh, it was actually quite fun. Wow. You, you have much thicker skin than me. I'm cold in Birmingham at 40 degrees. It feels like I don't want to leave. Uh, oh, uh, listen, I, I'm the same way now. I'm like, wait a second. What did you say the temperature was? Yeah. Oh, oh I want to get my, my, my hat and now to bundle up and so on and so forth. But you know, when I, when I came here, 18, 19, whatever, it, you know, I couldn't feel anything. I, well, I, I do have natural insulation, by the way. That's right. No. Well, okay. So you told us a little bit about how you got here and I realized we haven't yet said what Surflux does, but I also know part of your story that Surflux was not the first thing, the first, um, company that you started. So we're just going to have a natural project per, uh, procession to your journey of getting to, we gave a teaser that you're crushing cancer with surflux, but you graduate. Um, and you, you, I mean, you say it's luck. I know that you are a hard worker and you're so passionate in everything you do. So you graduate, you're from India, you're in Iowa. What happens next? How do you decide what to do? That's another funny story, by the way. So, I mean, funny, not as a haha funny, but uh, so I graduated at the time of a recession uh, and you know, things are looking pretty bleak. But at this, so this is in the early 90s, right? Oh. But the good news is that everybody's looking ahead to what is called the Y2K bug. I don't know if you've heard of this or not, but everybody's afraid oh, that yeah. computer systems, yeah, <clears throat> all these computer systems were just going to have a catastrophic uh, uh, demise uh, as soon as we hit the year 2000 <laughs> because, you know, we had two digit years, uh, two bytes or whatever it was as opposed to uh, four digit years. So there was a, so while the economy was still recovering, um, the tech industry, massive boom. I mean, mm -hmm. they couldn't fire. I mean, they couldn't find enough people. So I was pretty lucky that I had, uh, a very strong background in that area. And I was able to graduate and then immediately get a job. And then I was drawn into a tour to Atlanta. Uh, a contract brought me there. And then I was then poached uh, to come to Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, so, I mean, it was, it, was a, it was an interesting journey where even though there is a, there is a recession, we're just coming out of a recession, so on and so forth. And yet uh, I have a pathway, which is, you know, you know, very smooth. I'm able to uh, actually, you know, uh, come from, come out of college, get hired right away, and then keep moving up. I'm a, a senior architect before I even know it. Uh, things are just moving along really well. Uh, again, being surrounded by really good people has been uh, the story of my life is, you know, you go from one project to the other. Every time the project becomes, you know, at least a more a order of magnitude larger. You know, we're looking at these massive growing problems and we're able to come out ahead uh, in each of those cases. So uh, very fortunate to be with the right team at the right time to be able to come out ahead at every step of the way. 
And then when I moved to Birmingham, you know, we were just over here having a, a, a lot of fun because, you know, Birmingham is a fun place. Uh, and um, one night I was just sitting around with some of my colleagues. Uh, I'm from India, as I mentioned, uh, uh, they were also from India. And we were just talking about how the, the bureaucracy and the red tape and so on and so forth uh, that, uh, that we had encountered in India or our, our families had and uh, what it would take to set up a company in the United States. Uh, we had absolutely no idea what we were going to do or anything like that. But we were just sitting around saying, you know what, let's just do this experiment. Let's just see how bad it is to do to, to set up a company here in the U.S. And then, you know, one thing leads to another. <laughs> we start a company, we start getting contracts, and we start growing. Uh, I mean, you know, it's just, uh, uh, again, the, the luck of the draw. We were very fortunate. We were able to grow the company. We were able to make a meaningful difference in a lot of different uh, operations and organizations, uh, uh, you know, of, of, of various sizes. But our primary goal at the time was, since we were just coming out of the Y2K uh, fiasco anyway, mm-hmm. we saw that there was reams and reams and reams of paper. Right. That, you know, people were printing stuff out. There's a lot of paper uh, at the time. And so we said, you know, why don't we just go ahead and use this new company to uh, reduce operational footprints? Of companies, so we have to make sure that we are going to make this world greener. That we are not just throwing away resources because it makes no sense to do that. And so that was our primary goal: is to use every resource available to us, uh, technological advances and so on, to reduce uh, dependence on paper in so far as possible, and reduce waste in so far as possible. Because when you reduce waste, when you reduce friction in mm-hmm. any operation you are going to create value. And then that value can be shared with you and the operation. And that way, everybody benefits. Right. So so that's how that got started. Now, what, what was the question? I'm sorry. I got... No, it, it's how what led you to... Um to your passion to surf, to, to start oh, Surflux, but, that's right. um, so, but while you were in Alabama, I know several opportunities came your way. That's right. <laughs> and, and one of it again has to do with another recession. So yep. <laughs> in 2008, 2007, you know, we have this, this massive housing build up 2007, and then we have the, the ground pulled from under our feet. And again, there's recession and a lot of people are uh, hemorrhaging jobs uh, economies are tanking, all of this is happening. And at the time, uh, the, the good news is that we had, uh, our leadership had their heads on straight and they recognized that, you know, one way to buttress the economy, to, to provide it the right kind of strength is to build bridges with uh, other countries and trading partners. So we were not in the business of building walls, we were in the business of building bridges. And, uh, and which makes sense, because if you think about it, 95% of the world lives outside the United States, which means 95% of the market is outside the United <laughs> States. And you look at Alabama, for instance, right? Then you have to think about it this way, that 99% of the world, or more than 99% of the world, lives outside Alabama. Right. So 99% of the market is out there. Uh, so we need to be able to provide, we need to build bridges, and we need to provide products and services that would then lead to jobs and so on. Sorry, were you, you going to say something? No, no, no. Okay. I'm just fascinated. So uh, so at the time, uh, it was Governor Riley and, and the Secretary of State was Beth Chapman. And uh, they were putting together a uh, trade mission to India. And they wanted to go ahead and uh, pull together uh, some of the best business leaders in Alabama who are from India. Uh, but they couldn't find enough, so they had to ask me. <laughs> 
terrible. I thought you were going to pay yourself a compliment. <laughs> no. Oh, so, so, I got, so I got to tag along with this group, a great group. We had, we had, such a, we had a great time. We were able to build uh, strong relationships. Uh, we were able to deepen understanding between two countries, two cultures. Uh, and it was, it was great. After that, I went on some other trade missions for the state of Alabama, trying to show you know, Alabama has a lot of positive stuff. We just seem to somehow end up getting, uh, you know, the the louder uh, voices kind of sort of speak for us when it's not true at all. So we, it was really a great exercise uh, to be able to go ahead and showcase Alabama, uh, the true face of Alabama, the positive face of Alabama um, in many countries around the world. Uh, at the same time, I was also... Um, asked to uh, be the chair of the Smiley Professionals Network, the IPN here, because they were undergoing the effects of the uh, the recession as well. And so I was able to piggyback the two off of each other and uh, was able to help set up a global infrastructure even for IPN at the time. We, I was working with some phenomenal people. I, IPN is an incredible group. And when I say that I was able to build that, what I'm trying to say is I was, again, tagging along uh, in that journey where I got to be a part of this, this incredible uh, initiative where we were able to build a global infrastructure, we were able to build trading partners for the state of Alabama. Uh, so everything is going really well, right? So how does this lead to cancer? Well, here's the problem. When you are out there uh, in different parts of the world, you know, you, you're doing this this uh, task of building bridges and so on and so forth. But the one thing that you can't help but notice is that the devastation that is caused by disease, in particular cancer, uh, around the world. Mm -hmm. And so when, you know, I, I had committed to both organizations three years to serve with them. Uh, so when that, uh, that, when that uh, tour of service, so to speak, was done, I said, look, if we, are, if we are truly that smart, then we should be able to solve this problem of cancer. I mean, how bad can it be, right? After all, it's just, you know, it's just another disease. Uh, that was my problem is I had actually no background in biology or medicine or any of that. So I was like, hmm, this thing can't be that difficult. Uh, we should be able to, 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 uh, to uh, solve this problem. And so that's how I uh, got in, interested in cancer. And then I realized that, listen, if I want to make a true impact, I have to learn enough about it. So I signed up for the uh, for a PhD in nanomedicine at UAB. Wait, wait, and, wait, uh, wait, wait, wait. I'm not going to let you get away with that that easily. Because <laughs> you just signed up for a PhD, like everybody does that. So so let's just, so you've, I'm not going to ask you how old you were, because that might, you might not want to let people determine how old you are now, but you, how long well, had you been out of college? You had a career. Yes. And you had a family and you just decided we're just change. We're just totally shifting. Well, it's not totally shifting. It's like, you know, uh, it's like the CPU, you know, in a computer has tasks scheduled, right. it's something similar to that. Right. So oftentimes the CPU is idling, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, we have CPUs waiting on IO. Uh, so, and that was, that is kind of the case. And I think that's how most of my time management essentially works is like a CPU scheduler uh -huh. um, uh, that, uh, you know, that, and I was able to uh, structure the, the work that I'm doing so that it would open up a window of time mm -hmm. that I could dedicate to learning more you know, you know, in terms of nanomedicine. And the, again, the advantage 
is the field, uh, life sciences in particular, has this huge advantage uh -huh. that there is massive amounts of idle time. So, for instance, I'll give you an example. Uh, when I was building uh, the uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, platform to mimic blood vessels, oh. every experiment that I would have to do, right? I would go ahead and seed the cells, then I have to wait. So yeah. I would put that in the incubator. Let's say it's a 24-hour cycle or a 72-hour cycle or a seven-day cycle. Well, I can't just watch it. It's not going to make any difference. So I would put it in there. And I'd get back to my regularly scheduled programming, you know, whether it is managing a company, whether it is uh, with family, whatever, while the cells are cooking, so to speak. And then when it's my time to go back and check on them, I'd go do that. And I was able to, to uh, mix and match these tasks. You know, again, fortunately, because it was life sciences, I was able to do it very efficiently. And I was able to graduate uh, as if I did the program full-time, uh, even though I was working on it part-time. So it, it, it worked out really well. Uh, I was able to finish my PhD in less than five years. That's amazing. So when you went into your PhD thinking, we've got to be able to cure cancer, mm. did you, how did you get to, to, to the direction where you, where you ended in your five years? And then what was the shift to where you are today? Like, how did your path lead you to where y'all are with Surflux? Okay. So uh, again, I had the advantage because I was going in again, later on in life, not last yeah. year, uh, and I was going in uh, with a targeted specific goal, right? I wanted to do something about cancer. I wanted to crush cancer. Right. So I structured my PhD such that the first part was fully understanding. There's no such thing as fully. I understand, but to, as to the best of my ability, understand um, disease models. So that was the first thing I wanted to do. I just have to point out, because I don't think I said it earlier when you said I just signed up for my PhD, that you have zero medical background at this point, zero biology, nothing. Mm -hmm. But your desire, going back to what we said at the very beginning, you knew that this education was what you needed to be able to serve the world. And just you're jumping in and doing it. So I just totally interrupted what you said. But I think like just that you know, so many times people are held back like, oh, well, I'm 40 and I haven't worked in 30, 30 10 years, whatever. I'm just not, I'm just not going to go back or just, I mean, that's just, you know, there's so many different things where people just look at where they are right now and just write it off because nobody's doing it. But you knew that this education was going to save the world. And it didn't matter what the world said. You just went for it. So I totally interrupted your train of thought. I'm so sorry, but so kind, man. it's such uh, a good picture. Yeah. So anyways, so you went in knowing you wanted to cure cancer with zero biology medical background and you had great professors. And so how did that shape your path? Yeah. So the first half, like I said, I was just about disease models. And then the second half was treatment models. So, you know, mm -hmm. we, this is how I wanted to structure it. And um, so halfway through my PhD, I filed for the first patent, you know, uh, which is essentially the precursor to some of the, uh, the platforms that we're developing today. And the idea is, uh, you, you know, let me jump a little further back, right? So if you think about uh, cancer, right, we know that half the world or nearly half the world will be diagnosed with cancer. That's just a statistical 
eventuality, right? Mm-hmm. Which means everyone, including you, me, everybody will come face to face with cancer. Right. So that was a, that was something that was coming. You know, this is a, a challenge that uh, is already uh, in front of humanity, and we have to find a way to solve it before it becomes what in some would say it's already an urgency, but before it becomes an emergency. So uh, we know that 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 is the case. Now, what is not as well known is that uh, when someone's diagnosed with cancer, it is conceivable that 75% of the time, so three out of four patients, and this is a, a fact reported by the FDA, that three out of four patients are first treated with drugs that don't work for them. And those drugs don't work, not because the doctors don't know what they're doing. It's because the doctors don't have a way to identify which treatment will work best for which patient. Mm. So what is missing is a way to match treatments to tumors. That's, that's something that's, uh, uh, you know, that can predict uh, which treatment will work better. So that's, that's a massive void in the market. Uh, so when you, when you kind of recognize that, that hey, listen, I know that the, this is a $2.5 trillion problem. You know, the, the, every year we're spending $2.5 trillion. Uh, nice. This is a total impact, yeah. Now, we also know, so there's a financial cost, but we also know that there is a huge quality of life cost. Mm. Sure, you know, quantity of life also because, you know, people are dying uh, sooner than they need to, right? So, but there's also a huge quality of life impact. The three out of four patients are going to go through the cycle uh, of chemotherapy or whatever have you. They're going to go through the pain, the suffering. It's not going to do anything for them. And in some cases, it might actually even be harmful. So, uh, you know, what can we do to solve that problem? So you have to first look around saying, what are other people doing? Lots of smart people doing lots of great things, right? Um, but there's still lots of room for improvement. Uh, one of the areas that, uh, so, uh, that is very, very um, uh, hyped up right now, and, and in, with good reason, is genomics and proteomics. There's a lot of interest in uh, the, the nanoscale evaluation of you know, cellular and subcellular pathways and so on, because these things lead to some really groundbreaking uh, therapeutics. So all excellent. But what is still kind of missing is this matching, even though we have really good treatment options and we have a really great uh, uh, clinical uh, providers, there's still not a way to match those. So that's the reason why the disease models, okay? Mm -hmm. Because is there something that we can do to somehow make a little avatar of the patient blast that avatar with all kinds of therapeutics that, that are FDA approved, okay? So these are drugs that the patient could be given. And then in a very quick turnaround time, be able to predict which ones will work and which ones will not work. And that was basically the seed of, of uh, getting to Surflux. So we built this platform, have been growing it. And then um, when I graduated, so I graduated in April of 2018, and we started the company in May of 2018. Um, uh, with you know, because the idea was pretty simple, right? Not, not, no rocket science involved, not, not, nothing um, uh, extraordinary. We simply want to match treatments to tumors. Very basic idea, very simple idea. The problem that a lot of companies are having is that. You know, let's let's just say I have a tumor, right? And I'm going to get a small biopsy from the tumor. That's, this is pretty standard. Uh, they do a, a, a small uh, section of the tissue from the tumor is, is retrieved, so we can analyze uh, what is the makeup and so on and so forth. Now, what we were thinking was, 
What if we could just take that same little piece of tissue and evaluate a bunch of therapeutics using that tissue? And we're not the only ones thinking that. There are other guys who are thinking that too. However, what they're doing uh, for the most part is they take that little piece of tissue because it's not enough tissue to test a bunch of mm -hmm. things. So they expand it, which takes a little bit of time. Uh, some companies take up to eight, nine months oh, to come yeah. up with the right answer. And the good news is they come up with really good answers. Yeah. The bad news is it's too late too by the long. time they give you the answer. Yeah. Right. So our approach is slightly different. Instead of growing the tissue, we have shrunk the apparatus. Yeah. So that, yeah. So Why not? that's it. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not, uh, again, it's not something that is uh, completely revolutionary or anything like that. Uh, you know, people are just going in one direction with tissue, expanded tissue, so you can test. We're going in the other direction saying, you know, forget about expanding the tissue, let's shrink the apparatus. So then we don't have to expand the tissue so we can give the answers more quickly. That's the, that's the whole basis of circle. And it is amazing. So I want you to, Put that in um, like impact terms. Like if somebody, if if I was diagnosed with breast cancer, what surflux could, how how we would use surflux and how it would affect me immediately. Okay, compared so let, to what? Yeah, happens now. So right now, what happens is, you know, again, we have got some, we've got exceptional clinical teams They're doing an exceptional job. Right. We also have um, guidelines from the uh, NCC and the National Cancer network mm -hmm. um and the the so they do the best with what they have today right so let's just say there's a there's a breast cancer patient right that the, uh, that you they should brought up by the way the breast cancer research foundation has been supporting us and we love them um so essentially what happens is when the, when the diagnosis is made and let's just say that they they identify that hey you know what the tumor is about maybe uh, a centimeter of whatever it might be or they think uh, that might be the size so they could essentially uh, extract a small core biopsy. So it's like you, you uh, have a standard biopsy needle mm -hmm. that you reach into the tumor, and then you extract like a one centimeter long, about a one millimeter in diameter or smaller piece. And then you take a small section of that to identify uh, you know, the histology of the tumor. You know? Now, what we would be doing is we would, have, we would add no additional pain on the patient since the tumor has already, I mean, since the tissue has already been uh, pulled out and a small piece of it has been used for the histology that they would do, we will take the rest mm -hmm. of the tissue and then we would uh, load it up into our bioreactor that we have developed. And that bioreactor can then essentially think about it as uh, it having, it, it, there, are, <laughs> there are many ways that, that we used to describe it. One is uh, 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 grilling a hot dog uh, you know, so if you think of the core, if you think of the core biopsy, it looks like a you know cylindrical yeah. <laughs> tissue. So it's like a hot dog, and you essentially take that hot dog and you put it on a grill. But this grill is really weird in that it's not one flame under the grill, but each uh, you know if you think about the, the grill itself, in each area you've got different levels of heat. Mm. So you leave the hot dog in there for ten minutes or whatever. For us, it might be a day or three days, whatever it might be, for different types of tumor. And then you pick up the hot dog, and then you look at the char marks uh -huh. on the hot dog. And then based on the the, uh, the hot dog that's burnt, the more burnt it is, so to speak, the more effective uh, mm. the drug was versus not. 
it's a very simple analogy. I know uh, the, the analogy that I love, by the way, which uh, I, I shared with someone uh, the other day as well. So this is, uh, this is a guy, his name is Bart. He's right here in Birmingham. And uh, when he heard us talk about uh, Surflux at one of the events, he came up to me and he says, so it's like Tinder for treatments and tumors. <laughs> and, and it is, it is, Tinder for treatments and tumors, except it's the black widow kind because you know we do match uh, the treatments to tumors, but in a sense that the, the black widow will then consume the the tumor. Um, but that's awesome. Anyway, so yeah, so that's how. Uh, uh, I, I don't know what the original question was, Kim. I, I mean, I well, love so because yeah. we go from. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm working hard to keep it. You know. Anyways, my, there's my so fault. much to talk about. No, but but so what happens then after you're able to match right. the treatment with the tumor is that instead of me like going through one type of chemo that didn't work and then another type of chemo yep. that maybe worked a little bit and then finally getting to that third round of chemo or st- I don't I probably use the wrong word but you get to start out with the chemo that has been proven to be the most effective. Correct, correct. And now think about the other things that happen, by the way, okay? So that's an, this is what all the providers want to do. They want to get you started quickly right. on the right treatment because every day that you're not getting treatment, the tumor is probably growing. Every day that you're getting the wrong treatment, the tumor is probably growing. It's probably getting more aggressive. Aggressive, yeah. You know, uh, and every day that you're getting the wrong treatment, you're also kind of sort of becoming weaker because yeah. it's also affecting the rest of your system. So this is something that is a well-recognized need. So I, you know, you know, this is where we really feel like we can make a huge impact, and, and this is why we're working like crazy. Uh, yeah. but that's, that would be, that would be us anyway, because we enjoy the work that we do. But I think that the reason why we're really, really focused on this very simple, if you think about it, this is not when my, my kids understand it, you know, just about at what, at any age, you would understand that it's better to provide a matching treatment for the disease rather than just a, uh, guest best match, you know? So that's all we're trying to do is we're trying to get a better match, uh, for, every patient on an individualized basis because tumors are very individual. They're very unique from patient to patient. Mm. Tumors are not alike. You know, we uh, have, have this morbid joke which says that uh, cancer is a very rare disease that is ubiquitous mm. because each tumor is different and it's not just uh, different in how it's composed or where it is or so on and so forth, but it's also how it responds to treatment and also within a single tumor you also have a lot of different kind of factions sometimes they're good sometimes they're uh, malicious so we have to be able to do a lot uh, uh, of little variable tuning so to speak to be able to identify the right treatment uh, for each patient so where do you see surflux in the next five years Wow. So, I mean, I, I would I would hope that in the next three years uh, uh-huh. itself that we are at least providing uh, matches for a thousand patients Ooh. in the next three years. I would like to be there uh, that we are providing a thousand patients in the next five years. I would like to be helping at least 10,000 or 20,000 patients because imagine if we can do that. You know, Mansoor, uh, Dr. Mansoor Saleh, he is one of our advisory board members, and he tells me, Kareem, don't worry about. The, the, the big dollars and don't worry about this or that or anything. The only thing that you have to worry about is one day. He said every day 
Mm. that should extend the life of the patient. That could be the one day that a new treatment has been discovered that could work for that patient. You extend the life of that patient or the quality of life rather for that patient for one day, that one that patient, whether that patient is a teacher, is a grandparent, an engineer or, or entrepreneur, whatever, that's one additional day that they'd be able to contribute to society in a positive manner without being debilitating. That one day is that day that his or her friends and family can enjoy spending time with them and they would not be stressed about the cancer. So he said, you just have to think about one day. He says, don't worry about the big, uh, you know, all of these big numbers and so on and so forth, just one day. And so that's what, you know, after five years, if we are able to do this one day, for about 20,000 patients or, you know, or more, or if we are able to extend the quality of life, not just one day, but by months, mm-hmm. can imagine what that does. Uh, so yeah, we cannot get there fast enough is, is what I would like to say. I mean, I would love to be there yesterday. So what's the next big, um, I don't know if hurdle is the right word, but step that y'all need to take. Good point. See, this is where the tech world is so different from the biotech world. Yeah. You know, we, we can't just get users and say, okay, here, pilot our product. And, you know, that's right. it work. Well, guess what? You're dead. No, so that's, <laughs> yeah, that, that would not be good. Yeah. Uh, so we, we can't do that. We have, we have, and this is by design mm-hmm. and it's, it's very good. We want it to be this. So there's a rigorous process uh, for us to go through this, these multiple uh, clinical research phases. Right now, we're in the you know, clinical research phase one. We will be in this for about nine months uh, or so, 12 months. And then we move on to clinical research phase two. And then once that is done, so during that time frame, we will also be getting uh, through some of the regulatory components. So we have to get our clear certification. We have to get additional uh, uh, CPT, the current procedure, a terminology code, things like that, that needs to basically be in place by the time we're actually ready to serve the first set of patients. So we have to go through like a two-year, two-and-a-half-year process before we can uh, actually be in market, so to speak, to start uh, this uh, commercial process of of, uh, providing this information to the clinical providers for Mm -hmm. their patients. So we have a bit of a roadway ahead, but I I also do believe that, you know, once we are cleared with this path, you know, after the next two-and-a-half years, it will be very quick uh, between that and the three-year mark that we will be able to serve 1,000 patients. I would love to get to that point as soon as possible. Me so, too. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So now I'm switching gears a little bit on you. The title of this podcast is Building Birmingham Together. And um, I know that you love Birmingham and love to do whatever you can to help businesses grow. Um, so what do you see are areas of growth Um for Birmingham, like what, what do businesses really need to buy in to, to really help Birmingham us all grow together? <clears throat> Can we get better parking? No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> I think they're working on it. I no, think so, they're working on it. I'm glad that you brought, that brought this up. The good news about Birmingham is already we have uh, an exceptional uh, culture, so mm-hmm. to speak, of openness. You know, we are uh, less afraid to engage, which is good. But I think if you wanted to see where where we can truly uh, unleash some of our potential. We have to look at the, the, the broader picture here, right? 
we are extremely comfortable. We have it historically, uh, very comfortable with what I call cash-based or coins businesses. So I call these coins business, wherein you've got retail establishments, you've got real estate, uh, you know, uh, factories, so on and so forth, where it's tangible. I can get my book value and I can see, uh, okay, here is my, uh, here's what my balance sheet looks like, here's what my income looks like, this cash flow, so on and so forth. So we're very good, very comfortable with coins businesses. But that's not where we're going. That's not where we're heading, right? So we, in the last five years or so, have made dramatic strides in what I call the bits-based businesses, which is your information technology. So we are moving from coins. Mm-hmm. We're still there. We're, um, uh, most of our economy, I think, is still coins-based. Mm-hmm. But we're moving to bits. We're moving to bits rapidly. We are understanding bits better. We are able to appreciate it and rally behind it. We've got good uh, infrastructure that we're building to mm-hmm. promote bits businesses. That's great. That's where things are today. But we have to look ahead. So what is the next chapter, right? We've got coins, we've got bits. The next chapter is ink, and that is innovation from new knowledge. And that's the kind of stuff that I think is involved with life sciences. You look at the, what Techstars is doing here mm-hmm. with the energy company, True Spin is involved in that. Um, Basically, now what we have to do is we have to take concepts that take a little bit more work uh, and that are not just growth-based. So bits-based companies, majority of them are growth-based. Throw enough capital at it, okay, grow it fast enough, more importantly, wipe out the competition, and then you're good. That's just how the nature of bits-based businesses is, right? Ink businesses are not just growth-based. You have to have a solid concept that right. is based on new knowledge. So mm-hmm. you have to have some new knowledge component, which gives you this barrier to entry. So it's not just a matter of throwing capital at it, but a different uh, mechanism by which you would establish yourself within the market or perhaps create a whole new market segment. Uh, and then you take this new knowledge because by itself, the new knowledge is uh, great from bragging rights perspective, but it's not great from a serving others perspective. And you have to translate that new knowledge to innovation. And by innovation, I mean that you have to actually take it to market and you have to be able to provide real value to real people. And that's why Inc. businesses. We are just embarking on this. You know, we've got Bio Alabama doing uh, uh, st- uh, work around it. I know BBA is working on it. Uh, so the, these are the kinds of things that we need to think ahead and say, okay, if we want to lead the economy in the future, in 10 years down the road, how does Birmingham position itself to become a leader in, mm-hmm. in the new economy? Well, we've got to get ahead of Inc. And we need to be able to uh, have the mantle of the leadership in Inc. And that's what we need to be doing. And for that, we need more conversations. We need, we need brilliant people, no question about it. But we need places for these brilliant people to connect, mm-hmm. for these brilliant people to exchange ideas, uh, share knowledge, and if they are unsuccessful in that current venture, to be able to refactor all the resources and go ahead and start something else with some other people or whatever the case may be, because these are not uh, just easy uh, problems to solve. But then, who cares about easy problems anyway, right? Uh, these are these are difficult problems, and so you need to be able to bring people in, in bring people together mm-hmm. in a very engaging manner. And so, I think we need to have people, and we need to have appropriate places mm-hmm. for these people to connect. Very important, my opinion. And are, we're on the way. You feel good about the direction that we're going? Yes, I do feel uh, I do feel good about it. And I think we saw some of that uh, despite COVID. Okay, we, we had this uh, 
pandemic where essentially a lot of the pain was self-inflicted. I think we, I don't mean by Birmingham self-inflicted, I mean national leadership and so on. Um, but despite all of the problems that the pandemic brought to us, I think as a community, we saw Birmingham shine. Yeah. We saw people come together, uh, you know, in helping each other, the spirit of community. I mean, was incredible. The Vulcan Awards just did their awards, and I was talking to them about the servant leader concept, and I said, that's not just one sphere. There's 100,000 spheres right here in Birmingham. There's a lot of good people doing a lot of good things, and I think we need to be able to harness that. We need to be able mm-hmm. to showcase that and harness that. So to your point, yes, we are on our way, uh, but it's a fragile path. Mm-hmm. It has to be nurtured. It has to be protected. Cannot take it for granted. Right. Okay. I have, I think I have one more question, but it might lead to another one. But the last question that I do like to ask everybody are lessons that you've learned along the way on your path that impact the way that you run your organization or just live your life. Well, I I can summarize that very quickly in what uh, Chris Krebs, he's our uh, CFO, he uh, puts it very well. And what he says is very applicable to both him and I, more me than him. Uh, And basically it is that every success that we have encountered in life thus far is by being at the right place with the right people at the right time. And every spectacular failure has been because of our own brilliance. So... (laughs) Uh, I, I think that I think it's extremely important to recognize that being surrounding yourself with the right people uh, mm-hmm. is extremely important. When we had our first set of uh, tumor specimens that we were evaluating at Surflak, I paused for a second and I showed the team a little clip from a movie, Mortal Kombat. I love this <laughs> this clip, uh, and I apologize. You know, if you ha- uh, I know it's not like a, a uh, award-winning classic <laughs> movie, but. But to me, that that one line where uh, Sonia says that a handful of people on a leaky boat are going to save the world, to which Raiden says, exactly. And that is true always. It has always been true in my life, by the way. And uh, I always used to think that it was about being on a leaky boat because no matter how how many many problems you solve, the next problem that you're going to try to solve you're not going to have enough resources, and thus you're going to be in a leaky boat. You're always going to be in a leaky boat. But that's not true. The real value here is about that handful of people who mm. are with you on the leaky boat. You have to make sure that you have that handful of people, the right handful of people, who can work with you despite a leaky boat and be able to solve no matter how big a problem that you uh, choose to undertake. So handful of people, very important. How's that? <laughs> That's great. That's great. You know, so one last question, and this is going all the way back to the beginning, um, because it's just, it pours out in everything that you say and do just this desire, true desire to serve others and make the world better, literally make the world better. Um, and I think about where you started with your family in India in extreme poverty. So, um, I just, how, how did this lesson get in this, not lesson, how did this idea get instilled into you to drive you to do, to, to do that in everything that you do, which has led to a software company, which has led to Surflux, but it would really, it would take that form in anything that you did. So where did that come from? And then, sorry, one more, cause you're a parent and I'm a parent. How do you instill that in your children today? And then 
that, that prop I promise. That's my last question. <laughs> the, the first part is easy, I know. Uh, but, 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 I, but I would, but I would uh, point out that, uh, uh, you know, we do come from humble roots, but we were not in extreme poverty. Believe it or not, there were a huge uh, segments of people who were even in worse of situations than, than we were. So, uh, so yeah, okay, having mm-hmm. uh, identified that or, or highlighted that, how does how how was I able to? Right? So we I talked about, you know, when you come out of poverty, you have mm-hmm. two different instincts. But the other advantage that I also had, again, it comes back to people, is I, I, I cannot stress this enough that I stand on the shoulders of giants. I've been when I was growing up, uh, I had. Wonderful set of people. My, my grandfather, uh, for one, for instance, uh, these guys were philosophers. Um, they they truly understood and embraced the vision of one humanity, mm-hmm. uh, and, and they instilled that in me. So that you, even though you're growing up in an, in a scenario in a context where you don't have, have enough, you have all, all these problems, but you're able to then at some point simply reflect back in and see the, the grandness of humanity. And you're able to see just how expansive, uh, you know, truly a human race is. And so that gives you a, a broader perspective. And then you also recognize that, hey, you are not here just to serve yourself. You are here so that you can be a part of advancing society. You know, it's uh, you have to work toward that. That is your mission. That is your responsibility. You have to leave the spaceship that we're on better for your children than mm-hmm. when you inherited, right? Than what you inherited. So that's that is that was instilled in me, not necessary, not not by uh, um, uh, you know uh, strict rules and so on and so forth, but through a very rich philosophical tradition of telling stories, really. Right. Um, and I'm using that with my children as well. So to answer the second point. And my children love it. And what I also see, which I did not realize at the time when I was being told the stories, is that as my children are growing, they, they now I can see that they are now dwelling on different aspects of the same story. So even though I'm saying they'll ask me to say something, uh, ask me to uh, repeat a story again, but it's a different aspect that they're focusing on, which which also shows me how their brain is developing, how they're growing, that they're able to now digest a different level, same story, a different level of the story. And to me, that is what I love about having stories that are told rather than uh, being written and read. Writing and reading, very important, by the way, so please don't get me wrong. (laughs) But, But I think for parents to be engaged with their children in narrating stories, I think is is a whole different dimension, whether it's parents, grandparents, whatever have you. Uh, I think that just adds a new dimension because it's not just a matter of, okay, I'm reading the story, I'm visualizing what the characters would be like, so on and so forth. But now I have somebody to bounce that idea off of, mm. somebody who's had a different life experience, somebody who's been on this planet a few decades more than I have. And it just makes for a very rich interchange. It's also very beneficial for me uh, when, I, when I do these uh, little story time uh, sessions with my children. They're all impromptu, by the way. There's no such thing as a set uh, story time. But there's a lot of benefit, both for parents and for children. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would say, if, if you get a chance, uh, read stories, sure, and then narrate them uh, to them. <laughs> uh, you know, add, add your own little flair to it. 
and uh, have fun with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Kareem, for joining us today on Building Birmingham Together. I am so inspired by the work that you do, but also for your zeal for life and your true servant attitude towards everybody that you meet. So thank you very much. Thank you, Kim, so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Building Birmingham Together is brought to you today by Forge. If you are tired of working from home and looking for a professional place to get work done, Forge is your solution. You can visit workatforge.com to schedule your tour today. And also, don't forget to check out workatforge.com forward slash connect to sign up to be a founding member of Connect. Founding member spots are limited, so don't hesitate.